Okay, here's a good one. Oh boy. Melissa asks, what advice do you have for performance anxiety? What advice or what advice? What advice? <laughs> okay, what, I was going to say, what advice do you have for performance? Oh, what advice? No. no. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's 94 proof. Is that what it is? Um, my, my, my advice for, for performance anxiety is, is just know your music. Yeah. We've um, talked about this a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Just privately. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, was it, was it Horowitz who always used to, who always used to say the, the phrase, I, I know my music. Um, oh, it could have been, I'm that's, sure. it's, a, it's as simple as that. I think if you just, if you, you know, there's not any there's not any trick to it. Just study a lot and practice a lot and, and know the music as if you wrote it yourself, like the, you know, the back exactly. of your hand. Exactly. It's exactly. an ideal to strive to, obviously in the, in a busy life, um, as you are, if mm-hmm. you're a student or a professional, you're not going to be able to do every concert like that. That's simply not going to happen, but that's when you're nervous. <laughs> the ideal yeah. is to, is to practice to the point that you know the music so well that, you know, you're going to be absolutely confident that, um, whatever happens is going to be of a professional standard. You're going to play the notes going to be fine nothing disastrous is going to happen and um on top of that anything nice that happens will be great anything weak that happens like you miss a few notes either it'll distract the audience for just a second or so but it won't be a big deal because if if you're solid everywhere else you know audiences know how to just keep listening and sometimes it just has to the charm it it usually doesn't distract people at all and they don't catch it so it just don't be so self-involved is what i would say like people get really nervous because they're they're, you go into a concert thinking what are people going to think about me are they going to like this are they going to like that is this going to go well how will this reflect on me as a musician just relax no one cares about you. They're there for the music. If you know your music, yeah. it will be fine. And and if it's not, you know, you the concert's over. No one, no one. Has, that's a great thing about being a musician, right? That's a, I count my blessings every day that no one actually relies upon me to do my job well. It's not like I'm a doctor. <laughs> it's, it's not right. like I'm a doctor a or a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if the concert goes badly, you know what? Go have a meal with you know your friends or your loved ones and have some wine and relax and do it, go back to practicing the next day, which is exactly what you were going to do anyway. That's the first thing I say too when students or anyone asks me how to combat performance anxiety or nerves about playing on stage. Know your music. But when when we say know your music, I think this is what you mean too. We mean like really know your music to the point where I can I can sit with you in your score, your music. I, I should be able to point to any measure and you can tell me exactly what's going on there. Why did the composer write this? Why did the composer write a rest right here? Why? What key are we in? What chord is this outlining why are we modulating to this key instead of that key right there's i mean the composer had to make a choice at all these points right because that's how how you compose but actually ask the question why and maybe you don't know for sure but at least you have a reason why and that will come through in your performance so if you really really know your music to that degree there's not so much to be nervous about right um the reason i think you get nervous in almost anything is you're uncomfortable Right. That's just life. Anytime you're nervous in an interview or in, you know, anything like that. Right. You're uncomfortable. So a way to make yourself more comfortable in that, you know, there's things you can't control. Right. The temperature of the room you're going to be in unless, you know, you're a boss and and you can (laughs) tell them what to change it to. But, yeah, you can't you can't control the temperature. You can't control who's in the audience. Right. You can't control the stage, the lighting. Usually you can't really control that much. But what can you control is how well you know your music. So. That's the easiest way. And the funny thing 
nobody talks about that, right? <laughs> any open yeah. Q&A and any discussion about combating performance anxiety, everyone talks about, oh, like what you eat the morning of, what you think about while performing. Like, do you look at the audience or do you not look at the audience? Everyone talks about uh, how, how you breathe. <laughs> nobody talks about actually knowing your music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I, I, it's the same as in life. Like you said, it's whenever you're whenever you're nervous about something, it's because you don't know you're in an uncomfortable situation and you're not you're not aware of exactly what's going to happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can again, it's an ideal like you're never going to be you're never going to um, you're never going to give a concert where like every single note is is as clear in your head as um, as it was in the composers. You know, that mm-hmm. would be, you know, quite frankly, miraculous. Yeah. <laughs> you might give a concert like that every once in a while, but you know it's an ideal to strive towards, and it's one of those things where even the smallest amount of work towards that goal will help you feel a lot better. Yeah, you know, even just yeah. attempting to know the music well will will make yeah. you feel a lot more comfortable than than um, thinking about you know whether or not to eat a banana before you play or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and also if I could just throw one more like very actionable thing to do, um, practice performing right? We don't practice performing that much and we don't perform that much. So again, that's why we're a little bit more uncomfortable with it. But to any students out there, right? Any high school students, practice performing to your parents, perform to them every weekend. Just have some audience, have someone watching you play a piece you've been working on, right? So you get, make the practice room uh, feel as much like the concert stage as you can. So when you get out there, it doesn't feel so scary. And record yourself every day. Just record yourself whenever you're practicing, even for a little bit, because you know what you actually sound like is quite different from what you think you sound like. And yeah. part of the part of the skill of a professional is to be able to um, have both to rely on your inner ear, but also to have a pretty good knowledge of of the sort of outside ear and know what know you know what you're actually sounding like, not just yeah. what you think you sound yeah. like. You know, it's, um, exactly. And yeah. just maybe one last thing. It, mm-hmm. uh, um, again, sort of, it helps to just get out of your own head and actually have, you know, if you're doing, if you're actually performing, regardless of what level you're at, there's some, there's some point at which, you know, you're doing this because you love music and you love people, right? Those are, those are the two sort of prerequisites for being a musician. Um, you, you, you like, you have to love music and you have to love it love people. You have to love to share music with people. So stop thinking about it yourself and don't be so narcissistic and self-cistic and, um, yeah. and, and, and point your energy towards not, not at yourself, who's extremely boring, no doubt, um, <laughs> uh, and pointed in, instead, we're all boring, um, pointed exactly. instead to, yeah, yeah. to, um, to the music and to the sort of crowd of people in front of you and, and, you know, pour your energies towards that. It's, it's liberating. Yeah. Um, no, what I often even still kind of tell myself before performing live, and it's that it's not about me. It's not about the audience. It's not even about the composer. It's about the music. Yep. That may sound cliched, but it's true and helps me at least bring everything down to earth. And again, it's it's an ideal to strive towards. Look, if you if you're going into a concert and you have like a sprained hand, you know, of <laughs> course you're gonna be thinking about that hand. And um and, yeah. but again, it's 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 not it's something that, you know, the the maximal benefits of it are gained even from trying this twenty percent, you know. Let alone, let alone if you actually go all the way, you know, to, to being totally immersed in the music, you know, you, you get benefits right away. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing, what, what I said about really knowing your music, that also helps you play it better. Too. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't say that part. But. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> not only does it help with nerves, but you'll actually play the piece better. So yeah, and you'll have a better time, which helps with nerves yeah. because you're not just nervous. You're you're like, oh, you're excited. Like, oh, this is gonna exactly. be cool. Like, I'm, I can't wait to do all the cool things that I, you know. Right. I actually, yeah. have an opinion on this now that I'm excited to share. Right. Yeah. 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 So awesome. Okay. Cool. Um, so sort of actually in that, un so unintentionally sort of in that same spirit, this is one that gets asked a lot actually. So Dan asks, what are your thoughts on music competitions? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. We get asked this a lot. Yeah. Um, I think you probably have more thoughts than I do on this one. So why don't you lead us off? Yeah. So my thoughts on music competitions, I think you have to know exactly what they're for and you have to know how to use them. I think a lot of people make a lot of category errors when it, when it comes to what is a competition and what am I gaining from it. Um, a competition is, is, not a, um, is not a way to judge your musicianship. <laughs> um, it's not a way to, um, to judge your um, creativity or like interestingness. Um, it is it is a it is a way to to judge a very particular aspect of professionalism in the music industry. It's a way to test your ability to to learn and and perform under pressure a large amount of music um, in a particular kind of way as well. The kind of way that mm -hmm. um, is yeah. is um, is most likely to sell tickets, quite frankly. Let's say um, it, it's yeah. it's a it's a play it's a professional recruiting program. That's what it is. Um, and for that, you need to be of a certain kind of professional mold. Um, there's no denying that um, that there's there exists a kind of bias for um, for the sort of accepted ways of playing and the accepted um, norms and standards of, of playing your instrument in a competition. You know, you do have to play it as as written, like by the book, with a good sound and good intonation, and not not a vibrato that's all over the place. Everything has to be just <laughs> so. Um, and people complain about it, but again, what it is, what a competition is, is, a, is it's like a large convention from which agents and managers and people like that can, can recruit um, up-and-coming talent for, for jobs, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so don't complain if you go there and you want to be the sort of eccentric flower that you are and, uh, and no one picks you up, you know? It, it, mm -hmm, you can be a yeah. wonderful musician. There are tons of wonderful musicians who don't do well in competitions at all, um, and you just have to make your way outside of competitions for that, you know. Yeah. Um, Glenn Gould has a great essay called "We Who Are About to Be Disqualified Salute You." Um, <laughs> I have not read that um, actually. <laughs> and and I think that should be your attitude. Like if you if you consider yourself an individualist, then um, then you know just have that attitude and go your own way. But when you do a competition, you know understand that there are real there are real prizes to be had. You know, there's recognition, there's money. Um, yeah. And there's the sort of esteem of your peers. Um, there are good things yeah, to be had yeah. from it, but to get those things, you have to be a certain way. That's just a trade-off. You know, I don't yeah. see anything inherently wrong with that. Uh, pe people yeah. say stuff like, you know, music is not about competition. It's, and you know, to some degree, that's true. But the competition, I would, I would say that you know, this competition is not about music. This competition is about career building. Hmm, right. You right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if, if I could add a bit onto that. Yeah, I, I second pretty much everything you say. Yeah. One of the things I do kind of like about competitions is, so there's two things. Um, one, I just like how real world it is. It really forces you to get out of the practice room and think very practically about something, right? Because competition is in a month and a half and there's all this music you're going you're gonna to have to play. You're going to have to play at it. 
and it's just not enough time to learn all of it. So it really forces it really forces you to be like real world strategic about how you're going to prepare stuff. And and frankly, performing in the real world, like as a career and performances and stuff, you have to be strategic that as well, right? Mm-hmm. If you talk to anybody that's gotten you know a if you talk to any of the great orchestral musicians, one of the things they always say when uh, that they're asked, what do they have to adjust to after they started playing full time in an orchestra that plays 40 weeks, 48 weeks a year? They said, I really had to learn how to practice. I no longer have, you know, a giant half a day every day of the week to practice all I want. Now I just had to be like really, really strategic. And I think competitions are that same way. They force you to get out of the out of the clouds and know like, no, I'm performing this piece in a month and a half. And I need to learn this by then as well. How am I going to do that? Right. And those are useful skills outside of competitions. So I think they really kind of hone in on those. Yeah. Christina asks, Chris, tell us about your page turning days. (laughs) So, yeah, this is um, for those who know. And I mean, I guess for those who don't, I sort of accidentally became the the official unofficial page turner for the flute studio at iu back in our college days back in indiana and yeah basically most people really don't like turning pages so just to clarify turning pages for the pianist during a recital because typically if a pianist is accompanying uh instrumentalist or soloist they don't have enough time nor do they want to memorize the sheet music so often if the piece is relatively hard, they it's really tough to physically for them to lift their left hand to physically turn the page. So often they'll have a page turner that just sits off to the side in a chair and just follows along and turns the page for them. So that's what I ended up doing at your flute recital and uh, some of your flute juries, other flute recitals. Um, yeah, basically people generally hate page turning because it's one of those things where you do it and if you do it flawlessly, nobody notices. But if you make one mistake, the whole audience notices. Like if you turn two pages and oh, now it's a mess and the pianist is lost. There's some funny videos to that effect on YouTube. There are a lot on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, or if you turn it too hard and the sheet music falls off the piano and stuff. There's all these compilation videos on 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 YouTube. Um, so so it's a very thankless job. But I always thought it was kind of fun because you get to dress up and be part of a recital, even though you didn't really do any practicing for it. <laughs> and I think part of it, too, was in addition to being a trumpet player, I'm also a pianist. So I, it's not terribly hard for me to follow along with piano sheet music. I'm used to reading piano music. So I maybe had that advantage. But I'm also a trumpet player and a solo instrumentalist as well, right? So I knew how the recital worked from their point of view, if it's a flute recital or a violin recital. There is that. And yeah, so basically, and, and then I started to get paid to um, <laughs> for, for flute players to, because then I started to really learn the flute repertoire, like the Prokofiev flute sonata. And I knew exactly where the page turns were already and where the repeats were, where you had to go back like a few pages. So it's, it's yeah, more than just yeah. turning a page, right? It can be, it can be kind of be complicated. Tough. Yeah. So, um, the Franck or was it the Franck or the, no, the Jolivet, um, yeah. the Jolivet flute sonata. Yeah. That the one's Chantelinos, a wild yeah. piece. Okay. Is that what it yeah. is? Yeah. Um, and yeah, those page turns were tough. Like it's, re- it's really tough to follow along and, but anyway, yeah. So I got really good at page turn flute repertoire and that snowballed. And pretty soon I was, uh, I was, I I was on stage pretty much every flute recital. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were really you were really the the flute resident page turner, and and, and you you would also like um you know chill out the the musicians pre concert. Oh, that's right. So yeah. yeah, you're part of the part of the team. You know, 
I performed, quote, in more flute recitals than most flute majors did. Just because I was at, on stage at every recital. Yeah. And so I kind of knew how it went. And I knew all the recital halls really well by that point. I knew the backstage area very well. So, you know, if you get me to be your page turner, it also came with, you know, I'm hanging out backstage beforehand. I'm calming nerves. I'm getting water. Yeah, yeah. Right in the whole, in the whole wingman you know it's uh it's uh, the chris arkin package yeah <laughs> that's what we're calling it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um context is everything <laughs> and I, I think too it really calmed the flute uh the flute player's nerves because i knew they had a page turner that it wasn't their first rodeo right like when i was page turning for your recital and stuff you're like oh yeah one less thing i have to worry about is if the page turner is gonna show up or make a mistake or something so yeah indeed indeed um yeah and you know if anyone's in the if anyone's in the san francisco bay area and they need a page turner (laughs) i assume you haven't lost your touch no i have not i have not and i think there's a movie called the page turner it's like a french movie it's a a french movie yeah it's about it's about uh it's about it's about what you think it's about yeah it's like a page it's like there's romance and like a page turner gets revenge on like the pianist because the pianist had some affair with someone that she loves or something like that it's crazy like it's like murder and, and, and intrigue but it's <laughs> oh boy every here and there i go on imdb i'm like oh yeah I, I need to add this movie to to my list jessica asks have you guys ever performed together and the answer is yes a few times um so not only have we i forget which orchestra concerts we were in together and it, it was always fun because yeah when we lived together right we'd go to the rehearsal we'd yeah. walk over together hang out walk back together talk about rehearsal and the walk back and the flute section you know it's usually just a few rows up from the brass so sometimes Streeter would turn around and give me a nod wink when, <laughs> when yeah. something happened that was amusing and we knew we'd be talking about later <laughs> yeah I'm trying to think of what uh we definitely did so there's a stevenson trio like we we said yeah we definitely performed yeah so that. we did um so we yeah we, we did that chamber concert together we did one of my favorite performances i've ever done which was masks by Felciano right and that was Richard Felciano yeah yeah right so that that was my senior yeah that was on my senior recital was it junior no yeah it was my senior recital and it was cool because it's um it was a piece for flute trumpet and phantom acoustics I think yeah was the name of the instrumentation but really a duet for flute and trumpet and it was a really cool modern piece one of the reasons we picked it was for any of you who have run a chamber group, even a trio, but especially a quartet or a quintet, you know how hard it is to schedule rehearsals, like to coordinate four calendars in music school, but even, you know, in professional life and stuff. It's so hard and so hard. So you usually end up rehearsing at like midnight on a Thursday, right? It's the only time you guys are all free. So we thought, all right, enough with that. We we live in an apartment together, so we can just rehearse whenever we're both home. <laughs> and so So that was easy. And it was a really cool piece that we found online on Robert Felciano's website. And it was free. Anyone can download it. Oh, is it Richard Felciano? Think. Okay. But Very we, we should, well we'll, we'll yeah. put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's still on his, on his website. If there's yeah. a flute player and yeah. a trumpet player out there who want to. Yeah. And there's a really good recording of it on his website, too. So, yeah, it was a cool piece. Um, rehearsing was easy. Um, and... Uh, yeah, it was it was really fun to like collaborate just like me and you, right? Because less personalities to manage sort of thing, right? We could just like talk yeah. about stuff, even outside of rehearsal. We could just talk about our approach to it because it was a really awesome piece. And maybe you can describe it better than I can, but I'll 
I'll say, because I, I was into it at first. I was down to perform it, but you were like really into it. <laughs> and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's basically, it was cool that it was a piece for flute and trumpet, but the way the trumpet used mutes and the way he wrote the trumpet and flute parts, if you played in a concert hall or recital hall that had a decent echo, a decent, am- a decent amount of reverberation, you, if you really locked in your tuning and really played well <laughs> together there'd almost be a sonic illusion that when the overtones and harmonics kind of lined up you could almost hear a third instrument that's like a weird combination of the flute and trumpet like in the echo of the concert hall so that's why it was called a trio even though it was just two instrumentalists playing it was we had to rehearse pretty hard to get that to happen and really like really play in sync but once we got it it was it was super cool it was a really really awesome piece that was fun to put together yeah, it's still one of my favorite pieces. Um, yeah, th- those, those are called difference tones. So okay, gotcha. When when two instruments that are in the same range, like high, the higher range, really, um, they play two two pitches, and yeah, like you said, the 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 frequencies line up so that it creates a third pitch. But um, the the pitch is actually not in the echo of the concert hall or anything. It's it's oh. only in your ear. It's it's literally and it's like an optical illusion for your ear. It's like an aural illusion. Um, it doesn't even like if you if you just um, like it, like the, the your ears is producing the um, it's like an after image. Your your ear is producing it within your own mind, and it's weird. It's oh, it's that's really right. odd. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, it's really it's really it's a really cool piece. We'll, we'll link it, and you should go listen to it. it's tough because it, it was this effect but the, the the notes moved really quickly so it wasn't just like yeah, you had to like yeah. hold hold these notes and have these different tones happen you know it was we had like a lot of notes to play and we still had to get these different tones to happen so there was definitely some um some like you know 2 a.m rehearsals that went on um too because <laughs> we we also crammed it pretty hard right like we put it together because we were both pretty bad procrastinators <laughs> so yeah i remember that too because we ended up having what we in hindsight now think was a pretty epic spring break but when everyone else for spring break was headed to you know cancun or some stuff yeah we actually stayed on campus because my recital was like the week or two after spring break and the piece was not ready it was not even near ready yet so we had to really cram and rehearse it like pretty hardcore and it's one of those kinds of rehearsals where you can't just like rehearse for an hour here hour there hour there no you need like a block of time to really like figure it out and stuff and really work stuff so so that's why i ended up being so middle of the night rehearsing that's when we knew no one would come into the recital hall and interrupt us when we're rehearsing it and and um yeah so we ended up just rehearsing so much throughout that spring break we like woke up at noon every day like practice our own stuff like hung out and then we'd like start rehearsing at like 11 at night and we'd rehearse until like three in the morning or something and also <laughs> just hang out a bit because the music school is empty with spring break and then we just repeat that like five days in a row <laughs> yeah, and watch a movie and go to bed as the sun was rising. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, was, yeah. that was really epic. That was so epic. And, and it came together really well on the, on the performance, I think. And, and yeah, yeah, it, yeah. it was a cool idea because yeah, I thought it was so cool as, as like a piece, right? Because 
just like in an optical illusion um yeah you're seeing something that really doesn't exist it was the same sort of um thought right you're hearing something that does not exist it's not anywhere in the real world it's only in your head yeah it was a cool piece a cool and you piece. get into yeah. all these questions like what is that what is existence what does it really mean to like you know you can say like if i create this thing and it's only an optical illusion it doesn't exist in the real world um but then you take a picture of it and it still has that optical image effect on you um because yeah. your eyes are still perceiving it so like is it not real you know yeah perception versus reality yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, right that's... yeah if a tree falls in the woods right sort of thing <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> So, but we'll, we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. Um, yeah, I think everyone should go listen to it. It's a really cool piece. Yeah. And I discovered too, Richard Feltiano, he lives in San Francisco. So he, he lives here. Oh, um, yeah. he's, he's an old guy, I believe. I believe he's over 90. Um, but yeah, no, um, uh, I mean, you should go say pandemic. Hi. Yeah. Even now I should just shoot him an email, be like, Hey, I'm a fan. And it was the Indiana university premiere of that piece too, which was kind of cool. Um, first time that piece nice. was ever performed at IU and and I think you get like a little you get like a little mark in the concert program if the school of music can confirm that piece has never been performed before you get like a little a little mark in your program and telling everyone hey by the way you know <laughs> so hell yeah Greg asks what was the most surprising part about making a podcast yeah so yeah great question great question um this is one we we, we get a lot uh, just cuz podcasting is like the thing now and um yeah yeah no we we definitely learned a lot in our um in our process of not only just making the podcast as we as we get better at it and as we do it more and more and make more episodes but especially in the initial days the the time from fathoming up the podcast idea and then actually launching the first episode we learned a ton in that month and people are even surprised we got it done in a month <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah for sure um i'm trying to think of what what was the I mean, one one of the most surprising things has to be just how much the how much of the technology that we use and and how much of the internet seems to just be duct taped together. You know, yeah, it's, it's definitely. A real, once you're on the back end of that, um, it, it's amazing, like how anything hangs together. It's just it seems like just a continual fluke that the that the world isn't the, at least the digital world isn't collapsing. Yeah, I mean, so it's it's funny, right? Because the podcasting ecosystem essentially sits on a bed of 1990s technology, right? And frankly, so does the internet for that matter, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, right? So it's just kind of a, a thing like that. Um, yeah, just how RSS feeds work. Again, that's like really old internet technology. That's that goes back to the early days of web browsers. So, and that's still like the protocol that's used for all podcast players and podcast hosting services. One of the things I think we learned, and I think we we probably knew, but never really thought about it. And I think everyone kind of learns this when they're starting a podcast in the sense of, in the sense of building up the backend part. It's just how, um, how fragmented the podcasting ecosystem is. YouTube is the opposite, for example, right? If you, if you want to create a YouTube channel, right? You create your video that you're going to upload, you edit it in, you know, either Adobe Premiere or Final Cut by Apple. But as far as like the, where the video lives, yeah, you create it and then you just upload it to YouTube and that's it, right? There's a spot where it lives, where it will always live, where it's free. You don't have to pay to have a YouTube channel. Um, if you do monetizing, that's often done right in YouTube. Um, everyone who goes to 
watch the video, we'll watch it on YouTube, the same place you uploaded it, right? Podcasting doesn't work that way at all, right? It's, it's a different, um, there's a different hosting service provider. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them that you can choose from. Each has their own pros and cons, but that's where your podcast lives. And that's where you upload it. But then the actual player where people listen to it and download it, it's completely different, right? It could be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. So there's there's all these convoluted <laughs> things going on. And then when you do monetization, that can be completely different. That's a whole other third player that has nothing to do with the other two. So so I think that's something that we learned. And it's one of those where we we had a kind of mess up a few times when we were setting up the back end and you know, retrace our steps and fix it. Right. So to any of my friends that start a podcast, what I say to them, or if they're thinking of starting a podcast, what I say to my friends is let's have a cup of coffee and chat for an hour because <laughs> there's a handful of things we would have done differently had we known. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Um, I think that that's probably, that's probably the most surprising thing. Everything else, you know, I, everything else is kind of what you would expect. Like it's, it's quite fun to do, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite fun to do. And it's, um, especially the way that we, we do it. We're not, it's not like overly produced, you know? not overly but it's Mm -hmm. not a heavily produced podcast um like we do kind of just um hit record and and chat so we're in the two dudes talking category of podcasts which is one of the great categories i think yeah and 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 we've been doing that for we have been talking for (laughs) a really long time so in that sense the the only surprise really can be only technological you know and i mean this sincerely streeter like i mean we've been friends for years and i mean about a decade now so it's close to a decade at least yeah it's close to a decade we must have met and because i i came to school in fall of 2011 so it's about a decade yeah so i mean it's also been fun i mean the cool part is it's a bit of a challenge um producing this remotely i mean that's what everyone's doing and that's honestly the norm in the podcasting industry even before covid yeah rarely are the two people or two or more people talking in the same room it's all kind of it's all kind of done remote, um, but it's been really cool. It's been fun in that way because, you know, we live in different cities and stuff in different time zones, but it's, you know, and, and we've been friends for a while, but, you know, before the podcast, we, we, we would chat on Twitter <laughs> here and there and such. We'd, we'd have a catch up call every, every now and again, and we'd chat for a few hours on Zoom. But what's awesome about the friend, uh, about, about the podcast is, you know, I mean, this sincerely, it's awesome to like really further kindle that friendship that we we developed and we used to talk every day when we lived together, of course. And now it's kind of back to that. We talk, we at least slack pretty much once a day or once every other day at the very least. Yeah, for so. sure. Yeah, I agree with that. So. It's a great way to, to, um, to keep up having inter- interesting conversations, you know, which we're having fewer and fewer of, I think, in, in, our, in our daily lives. I don't know why it is. It might be a function of getting older. Like college really is a... <laughs> hotbed of like you know in college it's just this intense period where everyone everyone that you're around is interested in the same thing and everyone has nothing to do but think about things so it's this time when everyone's having interesting conversations and it seems to die off as you get older and people start to have lives and responsibilities and maybe there's, there's some part of the brain that just becomes less intellectually curious as you age you know so uh, I'm, I'm, wonder, I'm glad that we can mm, keep we can keep you know keep the the spirit of conversation alive yeah, absolutely. And I do wonder too if it's because we're we're in different cities. You know, of course we both talk and care about each other's personal lives a lot, you know, cuz we're good friends, but our conversations are never about like the hyper local 
aspects of each other's lives or thinking, right? Again, we talk about it, what's going on in my life here in the city and what's going on in your life. But, you know, it's because we're so distant from that, I think just naturally we're going to have conversations about much bigger ideas and bigger topics. Yeah. So, yeah. So basically, and, and those, and some people have actually asked specifics. So we'll just say it. We record on Yeti mics. <laughs> so we use that. <laughs> We record the audio in GarageBand in both of our ends. So you record a local copy in your computer. I record a local copy on my computer. We then upload it um, to Google Drive, where, um, where then when we do the editing, which we do in Logic, we can just take both those audio feeds, sync them up, and edit the audio away from that. And we record the Zoom call as a backup in case something goes down, something goes wrong. Um, the Zoom audio will save. And yeah, it'll be a bit lesser audio quality because Zoom compresses audio quite a bit just to ensure a smooth video and things. But it's something. And if, if you need it for a backup, it's there. That's what the entire first episode was. Yep. <laughs> 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 yeah, episode one was was definitely um, rolling yeah. on backup audio. Yeah. Um, Classic. We didn't even have to wait till episode two to rely on the backup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, but anyway, some people are really curious about the actual specifics, and yeah, that's how it works. And we record it both locally, because we both, um, if you record into the cloud live, it'll usually compress audio, yeah. right? And also, what if your internet goes down or something? That won't mess at all with your GarageBand recording, because you're just recording locally right here. Or if there's any hiccups in the internet, like there's hiccups in the video, there's always hiccups in live video on Zoom these days. So, so that won't interfere with the recording at all because again just your mic going into your laptop into GarageBand and that's it yeah so people have asked so give the people what they want 